From back home at Fibush Media World Domination Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it's the Top of the Tower podcast, our post-NAB show edition. I'm your host, Scott Feibush. We are brought to you again this week by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. Coming up on this week's edition, we'll hear some voices from the NAB show floor and beyond, a conversation with Tom Taylor, the longtime editor of industry newsletters, including most recently Tom Taylor Now. He's retired, but he was back in Las Vegas to uh, be honored by the NAB, and we had a chance to sit down and talk to him for, I think, longer than I ever did in all the years that we were working together. That conversation ahead, we will also hear from Nautel's Jeff Welton on the show floor. But first, a couple of thoughts about what we saw and heard in Las Vegas. It is, of course, always an experience that is just simply too big for any one person to take in even a fraction of everything that's going on. And I'll be honest with you, I barely made it outside the North Exhibit Hall for my time at NAB this year, simply because that's where most of the radio vendors were. There was a lot to see there and a lot going on. Of course, on the TV side, ATSC 3.0 remains the talk of the industry, and with good reason. Uh, Although it is still uh, in the future somewhat for consumers, there's at least talk that receivers will be on the market by sometime in 2020 that can get this new format of broadcasting. On the transmission end, everybody's kind of already choosing up teams and taking sides and figuring out who's going to ally with whom. And here's why. The FCC is requiring stations that adopt the ATSC 3.0 standard to continue to maintain what's called an ATSC 1.0 lighthouse signal. But the catch is it's got to be on somebody else's frequency because this is now a completely new transmission standard. They're going from VSB to COFDM. You don't have to know all the technical stuff behind it to understand that you can't do both our current ATSC 1 system and ATSC 3.0 on the same channel. And so stations are going to have to pair up and do even more spectrum sharing than they are already doing during the repack that is now underway. What that means in practice is that if you are station A in a market, uh, you might decide you're going to become the ATSC 3 adopter, and that's great, but you still have to put your ATSC 1 somewhere. So the FCC expects you to pair up with station B somewhere else in the market and have them be the ATSC 1 lighthouse signal. They'll continue to broadcast both their own programming and your programming on subchannels on their ATSC-1 signal. They will send you an ATSC-3 signal that will become part of your ATSC-3 transmission. And ideally, the FCC hopes, in fact, they're officially requiring that you duplicate 95% of your existing ATSC-1 coverage with your ATSC-3. In practice, this is one of the reasons why station groups have been gobbling up spectrum everywhere that they can get their hands on it. Because they know that there's going to be a premium now in figuring out who can partner with whom in order to get this on the air quickly. And so these stations are all joining up forces essentially to combine spectrum amongst themselves. Uh, Sinclair and Nexstar have been huge leaders in this. Univision has been right behind them as well. I think this is one of the reasons why Univision hung on to multiple signals in its markets when they could easily have sold one off in the Spectrum auction and then just continued to run all their programming on a single channel. Uh, In some of these markets, it made sense for them to hang on to a second one. In Phoenix, for instance, uh, one of Univision's Class A licenses is now the testbed for what's being called the Phoenix model market, where there are, I think, 10 broadcasters in town who have all combined and are testing out ATSC-3. 
What's it going to be good for? Well, it's all the same promises that we've heard for the last few years. The pictures are going to be better. We're going to have 4K video. We're going to have HDR so that the uh, color range is larger and the blacks are blacker and the lights are lighter and all of that. We're going to have uh, even more digital sound options, multiple language options. You've heard all that before. It's still coming. But the reality is a lot of these broadcasters now are also seeing ATSC 3 as a way to kind of get ahead of this uh, 5.0 wireless that's coming that is, again, kind of amorphous, lots of promises, not a lot of reality on the ground yet, but a lot of TV broadcasters are hoping that they will have excess data spectrum uh, that they can use for people who would like to transmit high-speed data uh, in a one-to-many format over a high-powered transmitter in one location or increasingly now over a single-frequency network uh, that will have multiple transmitters all on the same frequencies uh, meshed in with each other. It's supposed to work better with ATSC3 filling in pockets that right now aren't covered very well. So, for instance, in New York City, you might have most of your main broadcasters on the World Trade Center or maybe on the Empire State Building, but now they can put additional signals on those same frequencies out on Long Island, up in the Hudson Valley, in North Jersey and Southern Connecticut, and bring over the air reception to places that until now have not had it. Are consumers going to take to this? We don't know yet. The first sets, of course, will be the kind of expensive stuff that only the early adopters actually pick up. Uh, You're not going to pay $10,000 for a new TV set, and I'm not either. But the hope is that within another year or two, there will be lower-cost converter boxes on the market, uh, probably more in the form of dongles that will just plug right into your existing set and give you at least some of the uh, proposed advantages of ATSC3. So we will see how that goes. What was happening on the radio side of things? Well, the era of the individual box that does one thing is largely over. Just about everybody that we spent time talking to and uh, looking at on the show floor had new ways to do multiple things with less equipment. So, for instance, SAS was showing off a console now that not only can control audio feeds, uh, but can also switch video cameras right along with them which means that if, as many stations are doing, uh, you're doing a video stream, let's say, of your morning show or your afternoon sports talk show, you don't have to get a separate piece of equipment that can follow where the audio is going and switch the cameras. That's right there on the console if you take up that option. Over Telos, there was something that looked just like any other Axion node that you might have in a typical audio over IP plant, Uh, except this one actually is designed to sort of be a magic box that compresses the distance between your studio and your transmitter and lets you send basically anything that you want back and forth from studio to transmitter sites. So now you can put your processing anywhere. You can put your monitoring anywhere. uh, You can send composite. You can do basically anything at either location. It doesn't matter anymore where it is as long as you've got a decent broadband path Excuse me, in between them. Uh, that was one version of this do-anything from anywhere. Uh, over at Wheatstone, where I was pleased to spend the day Monday shooting some videos with them that you can find on the uh, Wheatstone Facebook page if you want to take a look at some of those. Uh, some of the new things that they had over this year uh, were something called a switchblade, which allows you now to integrate voice over IP telephony uh, into an existing Wheatstone Wheatnet plant without having to go to an outside box for that. Now that becomes just part of your console, for instance. Everybody doing all kinds of things on essentially a virtualized basis. Uh, We saw a number of vendors showing all kinds of things on glass so that you no longer necessarily need a hardware board 
in any given studio to be able to do some of the things that you used to need a hardware console for. There were even a couple of uh, vendors showing completely virtualized studios uh, where it's a microphone and it's a screen and you do anything you need to do right there on the screen. You're going to be seeing more and more of that as we go. Uh, we will be talking in a future episode of the podcast to uh, my friend Alex Hartman from Minnesota, who is showing off his looking glass. This is a uh, yellow, I think, three or four rack unit device uh, with a screen in front of it. It looks just like you took an audio processor and painted it yellow, but that's not what it is. What is it? It kind of does a little bit of everything. It's basically uh, a giant toolkit for unpacking what's happening in the FM band at any given location and looking at uh, what stations are broadcasting on their RDS, keeping a log of that. That could be really useful at affidavit time. Looking at modulation levels, looking to see who might be splattering outside their frequency band. Uh, if you're a regulator, you might use it to spot pirate radio activity. There are lots of things that this box can do. And, oh, yeah, you can put it in one location and monitor it from anywhere in the world, including bringing back live audio from it. We'll be hearing more from Alex about that because that is a neat tool that can revolutionize a lot of pieces on that end of the transmission equation as well. So very interesting NAB show. Uh, you'll be hearing more about some of the things that we saw on future episodes. and We'll be talking with more of the people who are out there uh, and hearing about what they did. A sad note at the end of NAB, just after uh, most of us got home from Las Vegas, came the sad news of the death of Ron Rackley. And I want to mention that a little bit before we move forward. Because Ron was really a treasure in the radio industry. Uh, he was, of course, a longtime part of the consulting firm of uh, Dutrell, London, and Rackley, based out of Sarasota, Florida. But he was known as one of the AM radio geniuses out there. He had an understanding not only of the physics of how AM radio and especially AM directional arrays function, but he also had a deeper understanding than just about anybody and a deeper appreciation for the history of the medium, for why stations ended up where they did, uh, for why these sites were where they were. I know it was uh, incredibly, incredibly saddening to him uh, in recent years to have to do some of the work that uh, undid a lot of the growth of the AM dial and that took stations like WABC, uh, <laughs> KABC rather, not WABC, at uh, the KABC and WMAL and others and moved them out of their historic sites uh, to other less favorable locations because land values were so high. He had, uh, he had been sad to see that piece of the industry uh, go in the direction that it did. Uh, but Ron was really a treasure. He was always thrilled to share his knowledge with anybody else in the industry, frequent speaker at conventions. Uh, you always saw him on the floor at NAB, often uh, in the company of his competitor and the other great AM expert, uh, Ben Dawson. Uh, of uh, Hatfield and Dawson out in Seattle, and uh, boy, the amount of knowledge that the two of them together had of AM radio was just unparalleled. So Ron Rackley will be very, very deeply missed by all of us in the business, and uh, we send our condolences to his family. Another person who was missed in the business but thankfully is still with us is Tom Taylor. And uh, for many of you listening, Tom needs absolutely no introduction, because for many of you listening, Tom Taylor is the... Uh, voice, or at least the, the print voice uh, that you relied on waking up to first thing in your email inbox or before that on your fax machine. For over three decades, Tom put out his daily newsletter under a, a variety of titles. Uh, you might have remembered it as Inside Radio, uh, or later on as M Street Daily, then Inside Radio again, uh, Taylor on Radio Info for a few years, and most recently uh, under his own flag as Tom Taylor Now, where it uh, came in free of charge every morning. 
uh, for thousands and thousands of us in the business right up until Tom hung up his keyboard at the end of December. And it has definitely left a big hole for any of us who uh, needed to get a quick read on what was going on and a quick little bit of humor at the end of it to start every weekday morning. Well, the good news is that the NAB missed Tom as much as the rest of us did, and they persuaded him to come back to Las Vegas for a few days and attend the convention, and uh, he was honored uh, on the opening morning of the convention uh, in a ceremony at uh, which the NAB also had Alan Alda speak. So as you'll hear, the two of them got to chat for a little bit, but we had the opportunity a day later to sit down with Tom and his uh, ever-so-patient and wonderful wife, Sharon, and have a conversation about uh, how things look now that he's out of the business, what's next, and whether we might hear from him again. So, Tom, I get questions every day just about from people telling me how much they miss having your newsletter in their box at 4 in the morning and wondering how you're doing. How's Tom Taylor doing? Uh, Tom Taylor's sleeping more than Tom has since he was a baby, literally. Uh you know, once I started hanging around radio stations, my dad was in radio. I made my um, not promising debut at age four, mispronouncing Perry Como's name as Cal. <laughs> I was four. Um, you know, I started hanging around the local radio station in Western North Carolina when I was in high school, a station my dad had worked at years before. And then kind of got on the radio from there and uh, programmed. Uh, you know, it was on the air, mediocre jock, all that stuff for years, and sort of wandered into journalism. So I'm doing fine. I, I knew I would miss hearing from readers and being part of the relationship. You know, when you leave, if you've been in the radio in a market for a long time and you leave for whatever reason, you run into people and they say, you left. What happened? We're friends. You didn't say goodbye, you know. And, and it's that way with readers. I mean, I wrote for various publications for 31 years, and um, there are people who followed me, and I really appreciate that over the years. So, you know, you, you but things change, and uh, there, there's some family situations, some medical situations, and besides, my wife reminds me that we had not taken a vacation since 1995. And so you're back out here in Las Vegas after retirement. I got the chance yesterday to see you on stage with Alan, with Alan Alda, being honored uh, by the NAB at their opening ceremony for the show. Were you, you weren't even expecting to be back here this year. Well, I thought I might come, but uh, they called the NAB called in, in January and said, we, we, we'd like you to accept this award, and, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's a terrific honor. It's, it's the service, it's sort of like a career service thing. They don't give it every year. Uh, in high school, I was really honored when I won uh, an award for service to the to the to the high school f- for music. I played piano for I accompanied, and, and, and to me that meant a lot. And this this one felt that way too. So um, I might have come to Vegas. I would probably come to a future radio show this year, uh, you know. Um, but um, certainly was was a great opportunity and, and uh, I was not technically on stage mm-hmm. with Alan Alda at the same time but he followed me so and you got uh, to meet him in the green room he was terrific you know when you get a chance to meet famous people you hope that they're as nice as and he's he's just what you'd expect I liked what he had to say on stage talking about his early experience with radio and also just talking about and I think it's exactly what you get at with meeting people and wanting to be changed and be moved by the people that he meets. And that's been you over all of these years. I mean, I've, I've known you as somebody that I've 
shared news with over the years, and then for a few years as a colleague and coworker, and then the at generosity M at M Street, and then the generosity that uh, that you've shown in the in the years since, and. Uh, helping to get attention for the stuff that I do. I mean, you have more friends in this business just trying to walk to lunch with you. Took 20 minutes just with all the people stopping you in the in the hallway here. Yeah, you, you're the same, though. You're the rock star with engineering folks and, and, uh, and a lot of vendors. Um, you know, you, you just do your best every day, right? You just do your best with a good heart. And, uh, and to go back to what Alan Alda was saying, he's saying that, and, and this comes from acting. This is the old... Um, John Wayne used to say this you don't act, you react mm-hmm. if you're in communication with anybody this is not just radio, this is life and he says, you know when you're an actor when you're a young actor, you're just waiting to deliver your next line it's like you're just waiting until the other person figures so like you can get to your stuff you know. but actually the way it should be you should be listening to them and what you're saying is a response to what they said and that's communication you know, that's back and forth. And in the newsletter business, in the journalism business, you, you have some sense of that back and forth when people email you. Um, they trust you with a story. They trust you with a news tip. Uh, also, for that feature I did called uh, You Can't Make This Up. Mm-hmm. And before that, you had a newsletter. It was called No Names, Please. You know, people trust you with uh, embarrassing, intimate, hilarious, scary Story. I don't think I ever sent you the one about the night that I took WBZ off the air for two minutes. Oh, go, tell me. Oh, I'll have to. It was they, we had just installed our first ISDN line, and the spot where it was plugged into the patch bay in master control was right next to what was just marked compeller input which was the input to the entire air chain out to the transmitter. <laughs> and I was feeding some audio. I was doing stringing for ABC, and I was trying to feed them some audio and plugged it into the wrong jack. We've all been there, Scott. I was. I thought I was done. I thought my radio career was over. Now they uh, They were. They were very forgiving about it. But yeah, I meant to send that one to you. I never did. That was. It was a great I, feature. I loved reading that every morning. I would have loved that. And you know, I was always very gratified when people were willing to have their names on a, a story. A lot of people weren't. Sometimes, and there's still people running to say, "I've got a great story," but there are too many people still alive for me to tell you that story. As you walk around here now, without having the pressure of having to figure out what you're going to be writing about tonight for tomorrow's newsletter, what are you observing? What do you make of the of the state of radio and of the people you're talking to here? I think 2019 is going to be a pretty good year. Um, I think you've got, let's just speak generally about the industry. I think a large piece of this is what iHeart is going to look like post-Chapter 11. Okay. We don't know what Bob Pittman's got planned. Bob Pittman and Rich Ressler and then their folks, Tom Pullman and, and the other folks. But I think the rest of the industry better be prepared for a lion that comes roaring out of Chapter 11. We already know they intend to do either an IPO, fairly small one, uh, or direct listing, which is what Spotify did last year. There's, and that just gives the stock some liquidity so people can buy and sell it. You know, there's been this pent-up you know, sort of demand uh, some people want to buy, some people want to sell iHeart. But I, I think if you're competing with iHeart, you better be ready. And I really think you ought to sit down for some strategy meetings and think about where your station might be vulnerable. We've already seen them be willing to change formats. You know, they've, they've thrown up new formats against Intercom, uh, Radio 1, all sorts of folks. Um, and because they're so big, whatever iHeart does affects everybody else. 
Are we finally going to get the kind of nationalized formats that everybody thought was coming years ago with the elimination of the main studio rule and, and looking at, you know, I look at an operator like K-Love, and EMF are the only ones so far who really have kind of made the most of that regulatory opportunity and said, we can have one studio in Sacramento and do the same programming for the entire country. Even iHeart hasn't done that yet, and Cumulus hasn't done that yet. Don't know. I mean, you just don't know. The, you know, the technology is there to do all sorts of stuff. And as you say, as long as Chairman Pai is running the FCC, I think we're going to see a bent toward deregulation. We don't know what Pai is going to do with ownership limits. That's another really important thing we might get an answer to this year. Might get an answer in about an hour as we're recording this. Well, thank you. Could be, exactly. And, you know, he, he said at the spring show um, a year ago, in 2018, that he, he was going to move forward kind of no matter what the industry thought. But he, he'd rather do it with the industry's input. So we'll see. I, I think that's an important question. Um, has a lot to do with the future of AM. You know, they seem to be sensitive about AM and carving out some sort of exception so that you could own Blue Sky here, 8 or 10 FMs, and the AMs would not be subject to a cap. Otherwise, people would be tempted to just blow out their AMs, right, which could be devastating for AM in some markets. There's a lot of questions. I think 2019 is going to be interesting. As far as what I see in the exhibit floor, you're the one who's the mm-hmm. expert on that stuff. I've never had a chance to really uh, prowl the, the floor. I think certainly the the focus on what's happening in the car mm-hmm. is really important. You've got Audi. You've got Avis. I just was sitting in the Avis thing. Also, what's, what's happening inside the car? In some ways, that's sort of broadcast radio's last stand right now is the smart speakers and... and and streaming take over for home delivery. Uh, you don't see a lot of AMFM radios at Best Buy, do you? You do not, and that seems to be, you know, we were talking at a meeting this morning about all digital AM, and somebody said you can't go to the store and buy those radios. You can't go to the store and buy any radios. Any radio. Exactly. And there's, there are generations, plural, of people who don't know what a standalone radio is like. They know what Alexa is. They can use mm-hmm. that. Um, they can tune on. They can stream. Um, and... We're at this odd transition period, right? Broadcast to digital to who knows, you know. But people want good audio, and they're going to seek it out wherever. And I think smart broadcasters are going to find ways to distribute their products and um, keep their brands going. It it reminds reminds us again of how incredibly important brands are. And I think after the 1996 Telecom Act, people, A, marketed much less. Some people don't know what a marketing budget is. And B, just forgot about building brands. Now we're in the middle, you know, first came satellite radio in the first part of the 2000s, and then Pandora, Spotify, streaming, Apple Music. You've got all of this stuff. We better have very strong brands in terrestrial radio. And in some ways we're not in that conversation. I've been driving around Las Vegas. I've been out here for a week already. If you ask me just based on driving around, hey, what are the radio stations here? What are the brands I should be? I couldn't find them from being here in town. Well, I had a couple of cab drivers who were pretty upfront about it. I had, an, had a KDW at uh, 720 talk station that the cab driver and I were um, having a, an intense conversation about talk radio. But he's actually listening to the local talk thing. They just put a new local talk show on, and he was, you know, he was debating the merits of that. Um, had a cab driver who loves KKLZ. Uh, loves KVG, KVG, the 97.5, loves 98. Um, but again, they don't know the names as well as they should. We say those names thousands of times. And we're lucky if people say, oh, yeah, I like uh, 
Is it, is it 104? Is it 105? They don't, we're, we're not building, we're not putting enough resources into building brands sometimes. And we need that now if people are going to find those brands on a smart speaker, if they're going to find them in the social media space. Because otherwise we won't exist on Alexa and all those other things. By the way, at the Encore and Wynn hotels, people staying there tell me that every room has an echo. So I've heard. Yes, which is a little, little strange. But I'm sure more hotels will begin doing that. And again, that kind of cuts out the possibility that you might use that crummy hotel radio to find a local AM or FM station, probably FM because the AM won't come in in a hotel room, right? And these days with all the electrical noise, you're lucky to hear the FMs in a lot of places, especially on the Strip. Exactly. That's right. So, you know, people have to build brands, be ready to support them, promote them. I talked about that um, at, at my, you know, uh, the, the award thing the other day. Just be ready to promote and market and, and support things. Uh, radio works. It still works. I talked to a woman who runs an ad agency, and she said, you know, I've been doing this 30 years, and it's still true that a well-planned ad buy on radio with the right creative is as effective as it ever was. There is still just a magic to connecting via voice. I had the chance, in fact, the last episode of the podcast, I was down at Cornell University talking with the students there, and I said to them, there is still, I don't care if you call it podcasting, I don't care if you call it broadcast radio or the comes out. There's a magic to just communicating with somebody with voice. And you've you've got two generations of that. I want to get your dad on the podcast pretty soon. <laughs> I want to hear about his career. My dad's 90. He had 30 years in radio and TV. He had uh, he helped put some TV stations in the air and, and uh, radio. He had, One of my favorite stories of his was pranks. He never broke up. He has that amazing gift. I broke up all the time. Mm-hmm. I, you could break me up just starting to do something. Uh, by the way, it turns out, first station I worked at when I was yeah, younger was a place where there, some older guys knew tricks like how to use a metal trash can as a temporary urinary facility. Oh, no. And if you do it right over in the corner, you can't. Oh, surely you've heard this. No. Oh, yeah, metal, the big metal trash can. So, um, you, you you know, take whatever was in there. And one guy's, and you, if you're on the air live, you can hear it sort of, but it's not audible to the audience. You know that that guy is over there. I'll just leave that with you. Yeah. So anyway, my and another one, my dad, this actually happened to my dad. He was doing the noon news on WSJS in Winston-Salem, and he's standing up in the studio, nice RCA mic, 77DX, and, and they start lowering the mic. Oh, Gradually lower. And he's standing up, and he, he he's smart. He knows what's going on. He starts crouching down. They're lowering the mic. <laughs> and finally, he literally, Scott, is on the floor, oh, no. prone, holding his copy out. He didn't miss anything, doing the news. There is a whole art that my generation never got of working a ribbon mic at that distance because we're all used to being right up on top of it. That, that generation never got I love that. I've had that happen to me accidentally where the mic just starts drooping while I'm on the yeah. air and you can't do anything about it. But yeah. that's great. I'd love to have him on at some point. We'll have to make that happen soon. There's so many people of that generation who have great stories, and they're great storytellers. I really enjoyed being with you. Me too, Tom. Thank you so much. Do not be a stranger to the radio industry. Everybody misses you. Well, it's been a pleasure being back here, and uh, it is the industry I grew up in, and and uh, treasure 
and uh, have met so many wonderful people in. And my thanks again to Tom for taking a few moments to talk with us. I promise you that is not the last you're going to hear from Tom Taylor uh, or his dad, we hope, here on the Top of the Tower podcast. We had the chance a few days before talking with Tom to help honor another fixture in the uh, NAB community, if you will. Uh, And that is our good friend, Jeff Welton. Jeff is the uh, central U.S. uh, regional sales representative for Nautel, which is based in Canada. He's based in Canada, up near Halifax. And uh, in addition to appearing at the NAB show uh, all day long at the Nautel booth, uh, Jeff has also been a very, very frequent attendee and presenter at a smaller event that takes place a few days before that, the Public Radio Engineering Conference, uh, which is put on by OPRI, the Association of Public Radio Engineers. Uh, they pick an Engineering Achievement Award winner every year, and usually it is, unsurprisingly, a public radio engineer. This year, they chose Jeff Welton as their recipient. Uh, and there was no dissension about that because Jeff is constantly providing services to public broadcasters around the country. You can ask a question uh, on the uh, PubTech listserv, and he will be right there with an answer within an hour or two, and usually a really good answer, too. And if not, he knows who to ask about it. Uh, and then he's also, of course, uh, a major presenter at NUG, the Nautel Users Group, that takes place on Sunday morning. But before that happens Sunday morning, on Friday night, uh, Opry roasted Jeff in front of a crowd at Morton Steakhouse in Las Vegas. I was pleased to take a little part in the roasting, and I was even more pleased to catch up with Jeff for a little bit longer at the Nautel booth on the next to last day of the show and have a conversation with him about what he's seeing. You walked into the room at the uh, Public Radio Engineering Conference dinner Saturday night to find, what, a dozen of us all wearing Hi, I'm Jeff Welton t-shirts? I think Alex ordered a grand total of 18 shirts, and I don't think he has any left. So there was a collection, that's for sure. You didn't know that was coming? Uh, No, that was a complete and utter surprise. uh, It's one of the few times in my life I've been flabbergasted. Which is not common for you. You're not speechless often. My flabber doesn't get gasted very much. No, it doesn't. You knew they were honoring you, though, as uh, as engineer of the the year of PREC, right? I did, yeah. I got a um, call from Scott Hanley about a week before that. I don't even remember what I was doing. I, I remember I saw the Philadelphia area code, and it's, I, don't ha- I work in the central U.S. I don't have any East Coast customers, so I'm debating whether to answer it. Well, in hindsight, I'm really glad I did. Now, you are no more a public radio engineer than I am. However, you are very valuable to that community and to a lot of the communities around us. I mean, you've been, you've been at this now for a long time. It'll be 30 years come October. I've just, I've been really, really lucky that all the years I've been doing this, the company's kind of given me free reign to run around, and as I learn stuff, they let me talk about it. I got over the stage fright from the early days and just have a whole lot of fun. You put on a great show. I had the chance to get to the Nautel Users Group on uh, on Sunday morning, and it's 50th anniversary of Nautel, and so you presented. I did, and one of the funnest things about Nautel is that uh, our users, it's, it's like a big family. We try to be up front when we know we've done something wrong, which will happen on occasion. We own it, we fix it, and uh, yeah, it's just like being with friends. So it's not really like being on a stage in front of 400 strangers by any stretch. You presented 50 tech tips in about, what, 20, 25 minutes? Well, there was 80 minutes allotted. I was 20 minutes behind when we started, 7 minutes behind when we finished. So took off 13 off 80. That's uh, 67 minutes total. 
That's a lot of good information right there. And it was just a whole bunch of things that I'd come to. A lot of it came from tips articles I've done in our quarterly waves newsletter, things that I've written different articles for, just stuff that came to mind as I was writing the, uh, writing the presentation. And ferrites, too. Oh, of course, ferrites. I'm telling you, they're going to be tattooed on me somewhere. I am here to tell you I saw one of your new installations with Kevin Trueblood down in Fort Myers, Florida, about a month ago, and he was very careful. I said, if you take any pictures of this, be sure you show Jeff. I put the ferrites on the transmitter where he said to. Well, and it's funny because the day he finished the installation, he put a picture on Facebook of the output connector with the ferrites installed. So I think I may have established a bit of a reputation. For people who are listening who don't know, what is the importance of putting ferrites on a transmitter? Okay, so ferrites on their own don't do anything. Well, they they do something, but they're very limited use. Ferrites in conjunction with good grounding and a properly installed surge protector will increase the impedance of the downstream equipment to a lightning surge, and they add a common mode impedance, so a common mode surge is somewhat attenuated. So it can help in lightning protection and reduce damage overall. Which is why you provide them with everything you send out. We do. There and hope are, that people actually use them. Uh, sure do. Uh, there have been a few sites where I've walked in and seen the ferrite just sitting in the box, and that will guarantee you a scolding every time. Do you take out a wrench, disconnect the transmission line, stick it on there before you leave? There are pictures of me doing that. <laughs> so we're at your booth here. How has the show been so far? We're on Wednesday. You still have a voice, first of all, which is not always the case. Uh, my vocal cords are doing well this year. I mean, part of it, I think maybe I'm just getting a little more leather-lunged as I do more presentations and a lot more speaking. Part of it, the, the traffic's been up and down this year. A uh, lot of good folks coming by. We're seeing a lot of friends and talking about a lot of projects, so that's been really awesome. Um, I couldn't. I don't quantify that stuff. I mean, NAB releases official numbers, and make them up any way they want to so it's all good but uh overall i've been really happy with the show this year what uh, what are people looking at in the booth i know we've talked i had uh dave collisar and mike raid were on the last edition of the podcast talking about all digital am i know that's getting some attention here what else are people stopping and looking at so the two really big things i think from our perspective are the all digital am which is hugely popular um, especially the fact that we're able to put album art and basically AMRDS, artist and song title information. I mean, that is just the slickest thing ever. And, well, I get a little excited about it, as you can tell. Uh, the other thing that's been a lot of interest is the MP11 mode on FMHD, uh, the ability to have an extra 24 kilobits of bandwidth. And, uh, you know, whether you do a potential HD5 or whether you use it to expand the bandwidth on another channel so you've got better audio quality. So this is on top of the Base 96. How does this work? It's on top of the Base 96 plus the extra 24 kilobits of MP3. And now we're adding another 24. Right, so a total of roughly 144 kilobits. Uh, it is partitioned at this point. Well, and again, at this point, it's early days, so... We have a lot more flexibility how we do stuff. Um, once Xperi and DTS have a chance to analyze it, they will probably partition it like uh, as they've done with the Gen 4 platform where they'll give you several options to choose from and you pick the one that best fits your situation. Where does this fit spectrally with everything else? Closer to the inside, further to the outside? It's closer to the inside, so if you happen to be one of those stations that's kicking the deviation up, say, 125% or a little more, this will be an issue. 
What about my 92 kilohertz uh, analog subcarrier with the reading service on it? Oh, your 92 kilohertz subcarrier was gone when you went to MP3 mode, so that's no difference. Which is why we uh, haven't gone there yet. Right, right, exactly. Um, this one just tickles the edge of the SCAs. Or not the SCAs, sorry, my bad, the RDS. So you got to get rid of the 67 for this also? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's just one of those situations. We're coming into about 103 kilohertz at this point. So this is really working its way ever closer to all digital on the FM dial, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely it is. And, I mean, when you get right down to it, that's the end game. We've proven that on a single frequency we can support eight channels of audio that's relatively decent quality. I remember that from, uh, was it last year or two years ago that you guys were doing that? Uh, that was, no, that's a totally different thing. You're thinking of HD multicast where we were running 15 channels. Oh, yes, on. that was last year, right. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And that is still something we can do. So, I mean, if we went to an all-digital future on three frequencies, we could have 24 channels of audio, and they'd be interleaved and running adjacent channels. And by the U.S. standard, they'd be running half channels because mm-hmm. we run on the even numbers as well. Very interesting. And then in terms of the traditional transmitter lines, still uh, still lots of interest in that? Oh, yeah, no. And nothing's really changed there a whole lot. We've got our um, AUI companion, the, the flash-free mobile version, so you've got the ability to look at your VS or your GV transmitter on your phone, finally. That got a, that got a big applause line, the, the flash-is-dead part. At, uh, yeah, it did. At and, I mean, yeah. flash-free for the full user interface is not done yet. It will happen in the next year or so. I mean, we know we've got a hard and fast August deadline. We don't have, I mean, this isn't something we can move. That's when Adobe stops support. Mm-hmm. And so engineering has got a target, and they're hoping, like I say, they're hoping to have it by early next year. I'll be perfectly honest. If I see it by July 31st, I'll be perfectly happy. Is this something that's going to be automatically pushed out to users, or they have to go and download an update? No, we do not automatically push out stuff for the specific reason that we do not want to have control over when people do stuff. It's the, How many people do you know love their Windows updates? Mm-hmm. We're not going to be that guy. I got bitten by one just this morning, as a matter of fact. Exactly. It's one of the reasons we use the LTS version of Windows in our HD multicast unit so that we control when the updates happen, not some other company that doesn't know anything about broadcast. Going to be able to get some rest after this, or are you back out on the road? I get home Saturday afternoon on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. We start our annual post-NAB training course. I'll be running a training course off and on for the next three or four days. I can sleep again in about a week and a half. I'm sure you'll be looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Jeff Welton, thank you so much. Scott, it's been my pleasure as always. And so my thanks again to Jeff Welton for taking time to talk with us. There are more interviews coming from NAB. You will hear from Shotgun Tom Kelly, among others, on upcoming editions of the podcast. Next week on the podcast, an extended conversation with Phil Redo. He is the uh, outgoing general manager of WGBH Radio in Boston and has had a long, very interesting career in both commercial and public radio. Over the years, we had a chance to talk with him at length about all those phases of his career and what he sees happening next. You will hear that next week right here on the Top of the Tower podcasts. So do not miss that. We'll be back next Wednesday with that edition of the Top of the Tower podcast. This edition of Top of the Tower is brought to you by Shively Labs, a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna 
and filter design and manufacturing. Thanks for being with us. Don't forget to check out our sister site, stationsale.com. Some interesting new facilities on the market there. We didn't even get into talking about the sales market. We'll get into that maybe next week, too. All ahead, thanks for being with us on the Top of the Tower podcast.